the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to a Thursday edition of the Treat the Back podcast. Brought to you by BackpageFootball.com Rejuvenated and overjoyed by Ireland's goals against Serbia Despite the defeat on Wednesday night We're finally on the score sheet at long last Scoring not one, but two whole goals I'm joined by Enda Higgins here to take a look at the game Hope you're well Enda Yep, all good Um, At least if World Cup qualification doesn't go to plan We can get on board the recent movement around boycotting the tournament, just like Norway have mooted with their clubs coming out against the treatment of migrant workers in Qatar, as well as their national team, which last night stood in support of their domestic clubs and workers in Qatar with a t-shirt slogan saying human rights on and off the pitch, which further highlights the issues surrounding Qatar's hosting of the World Cup in probably the biggest and, and definitely the clearest message yet in acknowledging the problems with the World Cup in 2022. To discuss that, we'll be joined later on by Nicholas McGeehan from Fair Square, a human rights research and advocacy group which pays particular attention to the rights of migrant workers in what should be a pretty interesting chat, really, given the week that's in it. Um, but first, Enda, and obviously we have to acknowledge the kind of the hypocrisy here with us, you know, wishing so badly to at least qualify um, for the same World Cup in the space, same space that would have Nicholas on. But um, uh, wins nice 3-2 defeat to Serbia. And I mean, the other day we would have taken a goal and maybe a score draw, but that wasn't to be on the night. But I mean, we did get those couple of goals. What did you take away from the performance? Yeah, I, I, I thought the performance was okay, but I'm, I'm already being sucked in by this brave Ireland narrative you know, it's the first thing George Hamilton said after the after the match, and it's a good rugby term. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it reminds me of, especially the rugby in the nineties when we used to just get battered, and you know, you would say "Brave Ireland," and it's something we've luckily managed to avoid mostly in, in football terms. You know, unless for the for the odd tournament, especially twenty twelve, and you know, we struggled against Spain, Croatia. But um, listen. <sighs> Like every Stephen Kenny match, you you want to focus on the positives instead of the negatives. And you know, you look at the players who are missing, um, particularly Hur in mid, in midfield, and Randolph in goal. And and if they had been there along with the players that had started, I, I think you know Ireland would have had a great chance to get something from the game. So overall, it kind of summed up the Stephen Kenny reign, in which there was a lot of hope and a lot of things to focus on, and a lot of bad luck as well. I mean. Serbia, for all their mm. domination in possession, they only had four shots on target and then three of those lead to goals, you know. So I think overall it was a decent night in terms of looking to the future rather than analysing yeah. it as a start of a World Cup campaign. Um, but yeah, it was it was a tough night all the same. I suppose given all the changes and all the, the players that were missing, it was a, a fairly... Highly anticipated um, 
starting eleven, um, and I don't think anyone would have would have predicted what Kenny picked, especially um, in terms of shape. I mean, it, it was kind of suggested, and it has been since he took the job that you know we could go down the three five two route with with Doherty and and Stevens as wing backs, you know, given their experience there um, at club level, but. I mean, starting Jason Malumbi in particular was a bit of a surprise. Um, I mean, dropping Jeff Hendrick at all, um, I mean, just given his experience alone, um, you know, Shane Duffy not starting was fairly expected, you know, given his form. Um, and in retrospect, you know, you do wonder, you know, with Mitrovic coming off the bench, would, would Duffy have better been suited to... Um, to dealing with him, but what did you make of the, the starting eleven and and the overall shape? You know, is, is it something that we should stick to one forward with with three at the back, especially I suppose considering how well Coleman seemed to do on on that right side of of the tree? Yeah, you you look at the Stephen Kenny reign. You thought four three three was nailed on. I, I've been trying to get three five two into or three four three, whichever way you look at it, into the Ireland set up uh, for quite a while just because of Stevens and Doherty. And, you know, we have two potentially very good wing backs at Premier League level and utilizing that is more important than trying to fit other people into the team. But I was very surprised last night when it actually happened um, because number one, Doherty is out of form and number two, Kenny has never played it so far in his England, in his Ireland reign, excuse me. So I, I was quite surprised to see it. I, I thought it actually worked okay. I thought Malumbi was excellent on the night. And when he got subbed off, um, I was really surprised. And Ireland lost a lot of control. And I don't think it was any surprise that Serbia's two goals came within 15 minutes after he left the pitch. I, I thought he was excellent. Probably our, one of Ireland's best player on the night. But I do think the 3-4-3 or 3-5-2 has a lot of potential going forward. I mean, Coleman in a back three. We've not seen it much, but he was absolutely fantastic last night. Probably Ireland's best player. Stevens and Doherty then are in, in roles they're more comfortable with. There's less pressure on the midfield too. And then the front three that Ireland will probably persist with going forward, you would imagine when Ida is fit and Connolly has more games under his belt, two of those will start and, and they're probably you know more suitable for an attacking and fast-paced front three. So... I was glad to see it, but I was very surprised. Um, mm. And as soon as he took off Lumbia, I felt we lost a lot of control in the game. Hendrick started the season well at Newcastle, but hasn't really featured too much lately. So to see him come on from Lumbia, they're, they're two very different type of players. I'd almost prefer Hendrick in the number 10 position rather than being one of the two um, sitting midfielders. And it, it didn't really work for Ireland in the end. And then he ended up taking off Brown. We were chasing the game as well, which I, I didn't really agree with. I thought Malumbi yeah. and Brown did an excellent job in the in the middle of the field. Um, so I think there's a lot to work with going forward. I, I'd love to see that formation going forward overall because I think it, it probably plays to Ireland's strengths a lot better than their weaknesses. I think 4-3-3 three, three, three only really works when you have you know, two quality sitting sixes and then a number 10 to create, which we don't really have unless you bring in Robbie Brady. Um, and even then he's not playing much for Burnley at the moment. So being able to utilize the players who are playing week in, week out in the Premier League or in the championship um, would be a far more favorable uh, exercise for Kenny. And it'll be interesting to see if he sticks with it in the next two games. 
I think one good thing that came out of um, the performance and, and how they lined up is we're probably a few steps closer to um, to seeing Kenny's strongest eleven or even his kind of more predictable eleven. Um, like you mentioned, Malumbi there. I actually thought Josh Cullen was the best of the three in in the terms of the role that he was set out to do, um, and he broke up play nicely. And you know, barring that, the letting Tadic away for the for the second goal um, or for the third goal rather, um, I thought he did really well. And I, I I think I'd be happy to see him start from now on um, in that sixth role. Even, I mean. James McCarthy was kind of spoken about as, as the guy that's going to come in and, and, and make that position his own. But I, I, I think I'd like to see Cullen there going forward. And I, I think, I think obviously, if Howran was available, you know, you'd wonder, would he have started in, in favour of Brown? But I, I thought Brown was excellent. And I thought, you know, he kind of showed, you know, a bit of a leadership. I think he he's obviously captain at Preston. I think he showed enough for me that he'd probably be a happy enough nail on starter going forward as well. Um, I, I don't think he did anything badly enough where, you know, I'd be disappointed to see him go out. Um, so I think that's a good sign that we're, we're a little bit closer to seeing certainly kind of a, a midfield tree that we could settle on. Um, and just to mention Daryl O'Shea um, in the back as well, I thought he was very good as well. Um, and I was sickened for him when, when the first goal and he just kind of got turned a little bit too easily um, but I think, for me, he probably showed enough that you know he is good enough to start, um, especially if if John Egan came back and started in alongside him. Um, I don't want to be too critical on Clark, but you know he he, he could have done better for for the first header in the in the first goal, um, and obviously for the Mitrovic uh, goal. I I don't know if you if you agree there with um, with O'Shea. Oh, absolutely. I think O'Shea is the future of Ireland's defence, really, probably along with Nathan Collins. I think if Kenny was able to get those two together, I think we'd have a very strong defence potentially for the next decade, both in their early 20s, both playing regularly and both fit the profile that uh, Kenny is trying to put together. Uh, Kieran Clark, obviously experienced, but, you know, he had a poor night last night. You know, he he would have been somebody who... Kenny would have really looked to, especially after leaving out Duffy, to really have a good night. And he didn't. So I think he really, really let Ireland down last night. I'm a big fan of Karen Clark. But again, if we're looking to the future of Ireland, and again, you mentioned McCarthy, he's he's 30 now, you know, mm. struggling, always struggled with injuries. And has always struggled really to to fit his way into the Ireland team. Um, so I think we need to, take a step back and, and see what the Ireland team can look like in three or four years. And I don't think Clark and McCarthy would feature uh, in that sense. So I'd much rather persist with, as you say, Cullen, Mullumby, O'Shea. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Nathan Collins. I think he's had a great season at Stoke. I'd be shocked if he wasn't playing in the Premier League for another team uh, in the next year or two. He's been linked with a lot of teams so far. Yeah. Um, and he's one actually we didn't mention on the last podcast in terms of the under 21s or the injuries for Kenny, but he was another big loss. So, um, in terms of what Kenny is trying to build, and there is that you know, he's building, he's breaking that gap between the under 21s and the senior side. So, I'd rather look to players who will be um, starting for Ireland in the next four to five years. And a few of them that we mentioned earlier, I don't think they fit into those plans. Mm. 
Um, obviously, um, a night to forget for Mark Travers. Um, and I know he logged onto Twitter last night, and and you see the abuse that he was getting that some people had highlighted. And I mean, anyone giving oxygen to to those people who are her tagging him in tweets, um, you know, they simply don't deserve it. But I mean, the second goal. You could see it coming a mile away. I mean, the minute the ball was laid on from Mitrovic, it, it was just a, a matter of could he execute it. Um, and it's, I mean, he did, he made it look so easy that I was I was just kind of a little bit shocked that he did so. Um, I mean, just considering how how much of a lummox he's been for for Fulham over the past while. But um, the replay has kind of showed just you know it was an easy enough chance to. Uh, to take, especially if you're a striker at that level. But I mean, Travers, he he was the third choice. I'd argue that he would he would have been fourth choice. Would if um, Kieran Westwood was available, um, if he had come back into the fold, um, you know, I don't know if that's even um, an option for him at this point. But I mean, it wasn't going to be an easy situation for Travers, and we'd obviously you know add the caveat that if Randolph was available. You know, would any of those goals even gone in? Um, and we'd kind of still have certain question marks over Keller if, if the same to suggest the same. But would you hold on to Trevor's for the, the Luxembourg game? Would you, you know, you'd really don't want to kill his confidence completely at this point, considering you know he's still only 21. Yeah, the second goal aside, which you know, I agree with you, you could just see it coming so far off, it's one of the most predicted chips. And he executed it brilliantly, but there was no surprise that it actually went in. Um, but my bigger concern was during the first half, I felt that he was just a, a bag of nerves the whole time. You know, he didn't really command the box, which is what that Ireland defence really needed. I felt he went down very early for the first goal as well. Um, and uh, listen, I did feel sorry for him, but ultimately we were starting with somebody who's not playing regularly for Bournemouth in the championship at the moment, which is a big problem. Um, I would stick with him for the next two games because they're games I would expect Ireland to win, even in our current flux. Um, and o- O'Hara's playing for Burton Albion. Bazunu's on loan, you know, at Rochdale. You know, I think, you know, again, talking about the future of Ireland, Bazunu is absolutely going to be our, our next number one. But... Just in terms of managing Trevor's confidence, I, I, I'd stick with him for the next two games uh, and then reassess after that. I, I can't see him, if everybody was fit, I, I wouldn't really see him in our squad going forward. But just in terms of yeah. man management, I, I'd stick with him for the next couple of games against um, Qatar and Luxembourg. But um, yeah, he didn't have a great night. And um, we discussed it on the, on the last podcast that it was you know, pretty much inevitable that he was going to start based on Kenny's comments and we all wished him well, but Bazunu is a much bigger talent, even though he's so young and, you know, it was probably too big of a game for him to start. So mm. Travers was a safe choice, but it it just didn't work out for Ireland on the night, unfortunately. And and the three goals aside, I was more concerned about his lack of confidence, really. Um, and you, that for me is a bigger thing I would look at in a young goalkeeper you know you look at Pickford or <laughs> you know uh, Dean Henderson even when they make a mistake they have a sort of a, an arrogance or presence about them as if mm. that's not a problem you know uh, they'll be fine 
whereas you could see Travers shrinking, shrinking um, as the match went on. Um, and then the Mitrovic goal, obviously, was just yeah, the, the killer for him, really, because yeah. most modern goalkeepers, they're either way out of their box or, or they're standing on their line, and he was just literally caught nowhere. And it was, even though the execution was quite difficult, it was, you know, it, it, it was such an easy finish in the end. You just had to look <laughs> at the goalkeeper, which is unfortunate. I think I think the ceiling is probably way higher for Bizunu, um and even Kelleher that you'd have to think, you know, if we come into another camp without Randolph that that they'd both be ahead of, of Trevor's in the picking order. Um Yeah, and, and they've both played European football as well, which yeah. is massive, I think. I mean Kelleher was excellent against Ajax, Bazunu has played a few Europa League qualifiers for Shamrock Rovers as a seventeen year old. So I mean those things really stand to you on occasions like that. Yeah. And again, you know, not to not to be harsh, but essentially he's he's Bournemouth's second choice goalkeeper in the championship. You know, he just isn't used to that kind of not atmosphere because the stadium was empty, but that kind of pressure. Whereas the other mm. two, you know, even Kelleher being at Liverpool, there's a certain amount of standards that are required there. Um, and Bazunu, of course, on Man City's books. So again, again, he's used to that, you know, scrutiny and pressure. Whereas uh, Travers probably wouldn't be overall, especially since Bournemouth have had such a bad season with him as their second choice goalkeeper he's had very little scrutiny um from the media the general public and there's no fans obviously in the stadium so it, it was it was a it was a big night for him and unfortunately it didn't work out i found myself asking my um asking myself during the game you know have we been have we been sucked into something with aaron connolly that isn't there um i mean in terms of passing the eye test um, compared to Callum Robinson, and and I'm far from Robinson's biggest fan, but you could tell that he was kind of up for it, and he was getting in the referee's face, um, and you know he's kind of jigging jigging other players up. Whereas Connolly, he's a little bit moany, um, you know he's flailing the arms, um, and we've seen this a couple of times now for Ireland, and you kind of have to wonder, um, and you know Brighton are struggling, but has he have we been sucked into something? with him, you know, after his two goals against Spurs a couple of years back, where we've kind of put too much expectation on him. Um, like, he's obviously seriously talented and, and he wouldn't be in the, the Brighton squad in the Premier League if he wasn't. But um, there there is a lot of frustration there with him and you'd wonder, you know, should we be seeing more from him? Um, I mean, I was shocked to, to, to realise that, um, and I'm going to butcher his name, Vlahovic, the, the guy who scored the first goal for, for Serbia was born on the same day. I mean, just to compare their, their career so far, you know, he's he, he's established in the Serie A with Fiorentina, um, you know, scoring goals for his country. Um, whereas on, on the other hand, we're still waiting for Connolly to get his first goal. Yeah, I mean, Vlavic scored a, a hat-trick at the weekend going into this game. So, obviously, he was... Going to be far more confident. Um, I was actually going to mention the Spurs match even before you said it. I think that's the game where we all looked at Conley and thought, finally Ireland have you know a striker who's quick, who can finish. He carries himself very well, but I feel like he's one of these modern-day footballers who is sucked into being this wide forward because he has a bit of pace and you know could potentially finish. But ultimately that leads to a lot of inconsistency because you don't make the runs of a number nine. You don't necessarily track back because you're not playing as a winger in a 4-4-2. So you're almost caught in no man's land. 
if you're not scoring consistently. And we've seen wide forwards being expected now to put up the numbers of a striker. And Connolly is no, nowhere near posting those numbers. So I would slightly agree. I was actually surprised he started. I felt from Kenny's comments that he definitely wouldn't start. Yeah. And there was um, a moment early on where he didn't make a run and somebody played a pass and you just felt it's it's not going to happen for Connolly tonight. He was very, very quiet on the night and he would have been the one you know, we would have looked to to really cause Serbia problems in behind and, and it just didn't happen. And I think Shane Long coming on and actually causing that amount of trouble showed really what Connolly should have been doing on the night. So, you know, I mean, he's 21 years old. That's not that young in football terms, really. He has no. five league goals and 39 appearances for Brighton. You know, he's he only scored one goal in 21 in 11 games for the under 21. So he's not prolific. So, you know, I think Kenny has a bit of a problem there. And he's one of these who probably wouldn't be one of Stephen Kenny's favourites. Anyways, we know he favours Adam Ida going forward. So I think, you know, he was another, like Travis, he had a bad night, which Ireland didn't really need. He he would have been the one that we would have all looked to. Um, and I say this as a Galway guy, because he played for obviously Owen Moore and Merview, <laughs> that, um, you know, I would love Aaron Connolly to be a success at international level. And listen, he, he probably will be. Um, when he gets a more defined role, both at club level and international level. But um, I, I do think we're we're slightly caught up in the hype. Um, yeah. And he probably just needs uh, a, a run of games now uh, in England. Whether Brighton send him out on loan or not, we'll see how their season goes at the end of the season. Um, but he's not getting much minutes there at the moment again. And when he does, it's more of a winger or wide forward. And... You would think that would suit him over time, but I don't think he fully knows how to play that role yet. He doesn't really understand the runs that need to be made, um, especially if we are going to play with Doherty and Stevens at the wing backs. Um, you're basically playing in a front two, which is far different to playing in a four-three-three. So there's a completely different sense of where you need to be on the pitch and being in tune with your wing backs. Um, and I just think he 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 didn't crack it last night. Mm. Even even going off um, after sixty minutes with cramp, I mean, at twenty one years of age, obviously he hasn't a huge amount of minutes under his belt, but probably again, you know, didn't signal um, you know too much positivity. And uh, to be honest, I've never been so glad to see Shane Long um, coming off the bench because um, I think at that stage of the game we needed someone to just get in behind and kind of stretch things because you know they were camped out in our box and Connolly was offering so little um in terms of kind of you know stretching things beyond their beyond Yeah, their Connolly is um he is quite stocky, you know. Um he's not the picture of perfect fitness by any means, but I, I listen, I don't mind stocky, it means you can carry yourself, but then when you go down with cramp after an hour, you have to be slightly concerned as a 21-year-old footballer. Um and again, he was shown up by Long who's you know, been around a very long time, but um, his energy, the runs he was making, obviously his contribution for the second goal, compare that to Connolly's contribution, you know, it was night and day. So um, definitely food for thought there for Connolly. Um, I think I tweeted during the game that on the bench there was 
386 caps in total. Do you expect to see some of that more experienced contingent come on for Luxembourg just to kind of not necessarily guarantee the points, but, you know, go out with some degree of of safety and experience or, or do you think it'll be more of the same? Um, I mean, I was a bit surprised that Jason Knight didn't come on, so you'd imagine he'll play some part um, on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, perhaps, but... If if you look at the caps you've said, I mean, McLean, Long, Duffy, Hendrick, Brady, they, they would make up a lot of them. And are they going to be part of Kenny's future in the next three or four years? Assuming he's still in the job, which we all hope he is. Um, probably not. So I'd rather he stuck to what he was trying to do last night than, than bring in those. He might bring in a couple. Um, but the problem is, they're two easier games than we had last night. So say if he does bring in McLean, he does bring in Duffy, Hendrick, and we win comfortably against Luxembourg and Qatar, there'll be pressure on him then to stick with them when we face Portugal, for example. And I don't think they'll potentially match up well, uh, even though Portugal had quite a bad night last night, needing an own goal to win, was which was very surprising. We were expecting a bit of a hammering there. So I, I'd rather he... First of all, stick with the formation he chose last night and then stick with at least eight or nine of the players yeah. he picked last night because I felt that as risky as the selection was, it, it felt like something that could work in the future as opposed to being perfect right now. Um, and I think it kind of sent out a message to those on the bench that um, he's looking to the future, which is what he was brought in to do. Um, and I think that's the key point. A lot of, you know, and we had it in our Discord group, a lot of analysis about, well, you know, he gets too much credit or whatever just because he, he plays young players. But that is important at international level um, because we've we've struggled a long time now being too reliant on experienced yeah. players. And then when they fade out, we have nobody to replace them. And that's really why we're in the situation we are now. We, we don't transition very well as a national team and, and other teams seem to be able to manage that better. We kind of just try and get the most out of players that we can, you know, whether it's, you know, obviously Robbie Keane, Duff, John O'Shea, Cunningham, Staunton, they all played into their late mid to late 30s for Ireland. And then we didn't really have that kind of quality coming through. Whereas you, you can feel or sense right now that we do have a, a younger squad. Um, obviously, there's a bit of experience there as well on the bench, but I'd rather he stick with what he put together last night. And listen, I mean, 3-2 away to Serbia. I know Serbia have struggled in their last few matches and they have a new manager, but if you look at their squad, it's it's an outrageous squad, really. I mean, these are some of the top players in Europe. I mean, Juventus tried to sign Milinkovic Savage several times, but were quoted £100 million by the Lazio president. Mitrovic... Vlahovic, Lajic was, you know, at United at one point. Um, Fergie was a big fan. Milinkovic is one of the best centre-backs in Europe. Tadic is the best number 10 in Europe. So it was a really, really tough, tough start for uh, Kenny. And um, I think there was more positives to take away the negatives. And, and people think, you know, Kenny gets a lot of, you know, he, he avoids a lot of stick. And he probably does, but... Ultimately, we've had the Trapatonis, the McCarthy's, the O'Neill's of this world who've had a very conservative approach into how they want to play the football. And Kenny, you know, he's experienced League of Ireland. He's experienced with the under-21s. 
he's the type of manager we've been wanting to come along for a long time and he's had tragic luck as we've discussed many times but if Ireland are patient and do stick with him I do think there's you know a lot of positives to work with there I can't remember his name Rob Little he ran away and left his wife for a young and depends on the quality of the eggs in the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3 and some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets so when when the class 1 eggs are in waitrose and you cannot go there Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're delighted to be joined by Nicholas McGeehan from Fair Square, a human rights research and advocacy group to talk a little bit about Qatar's hosting of the World Cup in 2022. Thanks for coming on, Nick. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so anyone who's been, I suppose, un- unmindful of the Qatar situation may have only just come across um, the human rights issues around it with the Norway protest um, on Wednesday night against Gibraltar in their qualifier um, where they wore T-shirts saying human rights on and off the pitch. Um, and obviously Norway includes Erling Haaland, who's becoming an increasingly famous figure in, in football circles. Um, others might be aware of the Garden Report that came out last month, um, saying 6,500 migrant workers have died since Qatar were awarded the tournament. Um, Nicholas, could you tell us a little bit about those um, numbers? Um, I suppose since then there's been a little bit of pushback from certain areas in, in how exactly that figure is made up, um, but either way it doesn't make for, for great reading. No, no, it was. It's it's gotten a lot of attention. I guess that the the number doesn't, in and of itself, tell you tell you much, right? It's just a big number of people dying. It doesn't identify negligence. Doesn't tell you how those workers are how those workers are dying. I mean, the first thing to say is it has to be set in the context of this is a deeply abusive and exploitative labour system. Um, any comparison with a system of slavery is is not completely unreasonable. It doesn't mean that all workers in Qatar are slaves. Of course, they're not. Um, but it is a system that allows such appalling practices to um, to take place. Um, the the six thousand five hundred is, is a ten year death toll. Again, the more shocking statistic within that story, I think, was buried halfway down it, which is that sixty nine percent of those deaths are unexplained. That's the real um, tragedy. That's where the real negligence lies here. Qatar doesn't investigate migrant worker deaths. Um, so you've got a situation where 5,000 migrant workers, 5,000 migrant worker families have essentially no information on how their loved ones died abroad. Um, and I think that is what we need to focus on. Uh, and the reason that doesn't happen is because of negligence, because of a lack of concern, really, for the lives of, of the people who have made this World Cup possible. Um, again, just you know, further information is you have to set that information in the context of what we know about the risk to workers' lives from heat. Um, 
you know, that, that isn't the only risk to, to their health and to their lives, but it is the one where we know where there is a big body of scientific evidence that suggests that the heat is indeed killing workers, that there's big mortality spikes in the summer um, in the death rates. Um, so it is, even though some people have probably cottoned on to the, or attached themselves to the, to the wrong um, to the wrong number or, or have a misconception about what's happening. All these workers are not dying on stadiums, for example. Um, stadium construction accounts for about 1% to 2% of the total construction in Qatar. Um, but it is a serious problem, um, and I think it's, it's, it's entirely right that it has attracted a lot of um, concern. I suppose it's kind of hard to describe, really, the conditions that they are in, but... Um, I mean, when the World Cup was first announced that it would be in Qatar, um, a lot of the initial concern was about how we were actually going to see football played in such hot conditions. And obviously, it ended up being moved um, to a winter competition. Um, like, reading stuff you've written in the past, you know, describing how, how 4,000 sheep have, have died in, in a shipping dock in, in Doha, I kinda, it just illustrates just how hot it is there. Um, and it must be pretty unbearable for workers to have to deal with that, um, especially when the initial concern that, you know, footballers may struggle. It must be incredibly difficult for, for actual workers to be out in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that, that comparison, I, I mean, I, I found that, that, that incident um, just from doing research, you know, there mm. were a load of cattle essentially transported to Qatar and 4,000 of them died just, just, just off of Doha, you know. And there was a huge investigation into it as to how you know how could you allow a these animals to suffer like that and b for them to die you know because obviously mm. there's a commercial aspect to, to that as well. Um, and what was interesting about it is that far more investigation went into to that issue than had gone into the deaths of of migrant workers in Qatar at the time. Um, so that was why I, I sort of drew, drew that. Some would think a fairly callous comparison, but I, I think it is worth drawing. Um, yeah, when you when you spend time in a labour camp in Doha, or I mean, this isn't just a Catholic problem. You go to Dubai, you go to Abu Dhabi, you go to Saudi Arabia, you see the same same thing. When you spend time in a labour camp, um, and these are essentially shanty towns, um, which on first sight don't look habitable, um, but that's where the vast majority of um, the population of Qatar lives, because eighty percent of the population is migrants, and they live far from Doha, well kept well away from the sort of the, the gleaming towers and the fancy clean highways. Um, when you spend time in one of these places, I think you probably come away from that experience, not not so much wondering how many workers have died, but actually asking yourself how, how so many of them survived the experience. Um, they're just public health disasters. You've got 10 workers sharing a room in bunk beds. Sometimes you'll have workers sleeping underneath the bottom bunk bed uh, on the floor sharing toilet facilities and shower facilities you could have 50 men um sharing one toilet and a couple of showers uh, they all have to cook together and of course they're, they're forced to work you know 12 to 14 hour days um six days a week in temperatures that regularly top 40 degrees in the summer and, and rarely fall below 30 degrees at night when the humidity spikes up to 70 80 percent um, so it's it's quite a, a horrendous situation, and, and I, I, that is the important context to, to this big number that the mm. Guardian published. You know, um, again, we don't know enough about that number, but that's because the Qataris refused to, to release data on it. Um, but again, if you spent if you spent time in these places or done any basic research on it, um, you know, the the, the 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 death 
numbers take on a, a quite sinister and, and tragic um, tone. One thing about the report that kind of struck me was um, that there were families, say, in India and South Asia, where a lot of these workers were coming from, you know, had been reporting that, you know, people within them had uh, within the family had died, but had left, you know, perfectly healthy, um, you know, mid 30s, mid 40s. Um, and, you know, were dropping dead for unknown causes. I mean, in terms of maintaining and monitoring, um, you know, the death count, it seems to be very um, kind of callous in many ways that, you know, Qatar don't seem to care about uh, about what's happening. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely that. It's callous. It's, it's, it's gross negligence on a, on a grand scale. Um, I mean, the data we do get, right, we get data from the, the workers on stadiums, the workers who die on stadiums. Now, that accounts for about 1% to 2% of the total amount of construction in capital. But because it's such high profile, because there's such a spotlight on that, those projects, they do release some data. And you'll see regularly, you see things like 26-year-old Bangladeshi died from natural causes. Mm-hmm. That's what you find out. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine being the family of that, that young man? And his body has returned from those high-profile construction projects in the world with natural causes on the death certificate, which isn't, I mean, that is, that is not a cause of death. This is, this is not an impoverished, underdeveloped country that doesn't have the resources to train its doctors properly, to certify death properly. On the contrary, it's one of the richest countries in the world that has all the resources available to it to do whatever it likes, and yet it cannot invest the time and the effort to certify death properly and to compensate workers properly, uh, or to compensate workers' families properly. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a, it is a, a really tragic situation and, and one that it's very hard to have any sympathy for the Qataris on. Again, I would say it's not just Qatar. It happens in Dubai, it happens in Abu Dhabi, it happens in Saudi, it happens in Kuwait, it happens in Bahrain, it happens in Oman. You know, this is a Gulf problem, um, but, but the, the spotlight on Qatar is, is I guess, understandable you know, because of the World Cup. Nick, it was quite significant that it was the Norway international team that have publicly taken a stand. I mean, if you look at the players they have available to them, they've probably got some of the best young talent coming through in Europe. You know, even if you look across some of the under-18 academies in Europe, including United, for example, they've signed some of the best Norwegians around. So it's quite a a young and -and up-and-coming nation in terms of football. And and obviously, Odegaard and Haaland are are the two who are most recognised. Do you feel that that could impact their future careers, particularly if you think Haaland is linked with City? Um, you know, we know that Qatar doesn't really like to be publicly criticised or even questioned on some of their human rights practices. Mm. Yeah, it was noticeable that the, the photo today that everything focused on Haaland, you know, and, and I guess to a lesser extent Odegaard. Um, I think that is significant. You know, I mean, this this guy is 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 the new power in, in world football. Um, Arguably, um, or the most high high profile guy coming through. Um, so, I, so, so that was significant. As to whether it will affect his future prospects, again, this is another really fascinating dimension of it. I mean, European club football is awash in golf money, um, and and has become and and their rise to prominence, I think, will become even more pronounced because of you know because of the pandemic. We've got Man City and PSG sitting, you know, almost at the top of the tree. One is owned by UAE, Abu Dhabi, and one is owned by Qatar. Um, Bayern Munich are the one who are challenging them, and they're sponsored by Qatar. 
and and uh, that's caused a lot of controversy in, in Germany with Germany with their, with their ultras. Um, so I don't think it will cause. I don't think it will, will harm their careers. Um, but I think there will be a, a concerted pushback from the Gulf states um, to um, to call into question these calls, to undermine them, uh, and to undermine those making them. People will be called racist. There will be a lot of what aboutery, what about this, what about that. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's more what's likely to happen rather than it damaging their careers. I mean, what's interesting about you know you talk about City and PSG, Qatar and, and the UAE hate each other <laughs> and are involved in a pretty nasty uh, proxy war, uh, and football is being dragged into that. Um, so uh, that that might be something that, that that you see and that people talk about, but I, I suspect it won't um, won't harm their careers. I suppose. Nick, now that it's kind of in people's consciousness um, and you look at another example in regards to um, Saudi Arabia's attempted takeover of Newcastle, which has kind of been kiboshed by, by the Premier League, do you, do you expect there's going to be greater pressure and expectation now from, from people in football to make a stand? Um, I mean, obviously, Norway have made a huge one and it's probably... Definitely the biggest one to date, but you know, this week we've seen the Dutch, um, the English FAs have came out um, criticizing Qatar's human rights record. Do you think there's going to be more pressure now on on football associations, even clubs, to step in, um, or is it going to just like you said, is it going to be a case of of not wanting to bite the hands that feeds them in a way? Yeah, I guess it's, it's a really interesting question and I guess we're in the middle of it right now, you know, so everyone's watching to see how it plays out um, and it can play out well or it could play out badly. I think that, you know, the onus shouldn't be on players to take to take a stance here. You know, when players take a stance, that's that's great, you know, and it's great that they're taking, Norway players are taking a stance here. It's great when you see players taking a stance on Black Lives Matter and, and that's to be to be applauded, you know. But I think what everyone has to take account of is that this is a this is a this is a bigger issue than the players. You know, um, it needs to be football associations who who should be calling for certain things, and they should be making those calls very clearly and publicly to FIFA and to the Qatari authorities. Like this is what we expect to happen before this tournament, which we will play in and which we will profit from. You know, these are yeah, football associations are businesses essentially, and they're going out there and they're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> Um, so, so there is a responsibility on them, I think, to um, to make public calls and to say what they expect to happen, whether it's investigations on debts or a speeded up labour reform process. Those are things that they can do, and they can do it quite courteously and respectfully. Um, as to the players and how that's going to play out, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. You see, there's there's been so many interesting levels of political activism among not just football players but sports people generally. Um, you know, largely focusing around racism, um, but yeah, this is um, this is another one. So I don't know the answer to that question, but it is. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it how it plays out, and interesting to see how people try to undermine it. You know, because there will be a lot of people who just don't want they don't they like their football players just advertising products and um, you know not sticking their head above the parapet and agents will be a big part of that you know I can't imagine Haaland's agent is delighted about this you know I'm sure uh, this is not the advice he was uh, given was to take part in this but um, yeah yeah. so it's an ongoing situation that's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds 
Yeah, knowing Mino Raiola, I doubt he was too thrilled. <laughs> oh, is it? Is it? <laughs> right, okay. Right, um, <laughs> so we've we've talked about, obviously, people taking a stand, which, you know, I think we're all in agreement is, is the way to go. But Qatar do have a lot of support within the game. We've seen players for Bayern and City, you know, defend what's happening in Qatar. But more noticeably, higher profile players like obviously Xavi has played and now manages in Qatar and has been an ambassador for the World Cup for the last few years. And it almost feels like every week he's launching a, a very strong defense of Qatar and their human rights record. And we've also seen Pep Guardiola, which is kind of ironic, really, considering his Catalan um, ties um, and how strongly he defends that, you know, almost ignore the the Qatar human rights issues. Mm. Um what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I there's been a lot of... Um, one of the reasons this is so refreshing is because there has been so much of that. So many of the big figures in the game have done direct or indirect PR um, for for the Qataris. In Guardiola's case, he's actually done pretty effective PR for the Qataris and for their arch enemies, the Emiratis, for, who he essentially works for, you know. Um, yeah, that Javi stuff has been has been awful, uh, frankly terrible to watch. I mean, he's essentially a cheerleader for the Qataris. He finds no problem being a champion for Catalan democracy and pushing back against the rights violations of of, of, of Catalans, while at the same time, you know, making himself an ambassador for for a profoundly anti anti democratic regime in Qatar. Um, he also won the lottery in Qatar. I don't know if you're aware of that. Remarkably. Um, Javi um, was the was the the beneficiary of um, yeah I think he won a couple of million euros in the wow. Capri lottery yeah I know lucky guy um, luckiest guy around obviously yeah luckiest guy around yeah um, but I mean they're they're not the only ones you know like um, Zidane uh, was an ambassador for Qatar um, you know Pochettino's gone out and done his bit at the Spire Messi's gone out and done his bit uh, there um, Alex Ferguson back in the day. Um, was one you had more recently, I think, when Liverpool played out there. Liverpool actually did take a very creditable stance on, on, on Qatar. They called for an investigation at worker deaths before they played in Doha last year at the World Club Championships. Um, but um, John Barnes and Jason McAteer went out and did a promo video um, for, for well, essentially to promote Qatar in, in advance of that. So, you know, the Catholics are very effective at PR. Um, they're very good at it. They've got a lot of money to throw at it. And, um, you know, they've, they've, they've gotten some key figures on the game on board, which, again, I think just, just illustrates how, how refreshing it is to see, to see the Norwegians, you know, go the other way and express concern. Um, Norway have threatened to boycott. Um, and I'm sure as the months go on, the, the situation is going to be um, it's going to be under a pretty intense microscope from everyone um, and the human rights situation is sure to become more conscious in people's minds. Do you anticipate anticipate any sort of boycott at all? Um, if not from teams, then maybe parts of the media or broadcast coverage might be reluctant to, to celebrate such a tournament. Yeah, I don't, I mean, my, my hunch is no, but, but then again, I wouldn't have expected the Norway... Um, the Norway protest to go this far to the point where there's going to be a, a vote on it in June. Um, I mean, that could actually happen. You know, so that's that's something I don't think anyone anticipated. Um, and you never know how, how these things can can catch on. It's really hard to predict who's going to 
who's going to follow a campaign like that, or or whether it's you know whether it will just um, just peter out, you know. Um, I, I doubt you know broadcasters. I, I don't expect uh, will sponsors haven't really come under a lot of pressure. You know, I think if sponsors weigh in, um, you, you know that's when you know things are probably getting very serious. Um, but they've they've stayed pretty quiet about things. Um, so I don't know. I, my hunch is not, but I think what what boycotts do, or what um, proposals for boycotts do, and I think the Norwegians know this. I think there's quite some savvy people behind this. They know that that just the mere mention of a boycott and the proposal of a boycott yeah. opens up a space um, to 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 have a debate about stuff and to try and push things forward. So I think I think partly that's what they're trying to do. You know. Obviously, we're a couple of years on now from the actual awarding of the of the to- tournament to Qatar. But how much blame, if you want to call it that, should lay at FIFA's door for get it, allowing it to get this far? Um, you know, awarding a tournament to a country that couldn't even host it in its normal timeline, um, having to move it to a winter uh, tournament, and obviously a country that has has such questionable human rights history. Yeah, I think FIFA deserve all the criticism they're getting on this one. I mean, leave aside how the the the, the, the tournament was awarded to Qatar. That's been that's been addressed by people far more knowledgeable about that than, than me. Um, but just to you know, how, how how could you not do your your basic due diligence on this? You know, how could you not go out to Qatar and look at it and ask them, well, how are you gonna how are you gonna do this, and what steps are you gonna take to to protect um, the workers that you're going to bring in to do this. I mean, the population of Qatar was, I think, 1 million in 2010. It's gone up to 2.66 million. Sorry, 1.6 million up to 2.6 million. It's increased by 60% since, since they won the right. And most of those are migrant workers. So they brought in hundreds of thousands of men to make that possible. Now, why did FIFA not not ask for certain, you know, not stipulate exactly what they wanted to happen, what they needed to happen, um, uh, before awarding them the, the tournament. They just didn't. You know, every step of the way they've said, it's not our problem, it's not nothing to do with us, yeah. we're only concerned about stadium construction. And then you tell them, you know, you show them evidence for abuses on stadium construction and they say, oh, well, that was just a few bad apples and they're, they're fixing that. Um, so they are not and never have been on this issue an organisation that is taking the issue seriously or demonstrated any interest in pushing things forward. Um, I don't think the situation's improved under Infantino's rule post-corruption scandals. If anything, it's gotten worse. I mean, Infantino, you know, he, he was basically flying around Africa very recently um, to try and, um, mm. uh, in relation to the, you know, the, the, the African, uh, the CAF, African Federation's votes. Um, and he did that in a Qatar Airways private jet that was, that was, gifted to him um, so you know uh, what can we expect from um, an organisation that that, that 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 has that relationship with this host you know yeah let's look at Qatar themselves for a moment um, and obviously there's a lot of political um, things afoot here that we're not going to get to today but I mean they've invested a lot of money in PSG they've you know, what's what's their end game in all of this? What are they hoping to achieve from, 
you know, bringing such a huge spotlight to their country? Um, I mean, I think it's a simple answer is the spotlight. You know, they were never, um, nobody knew much about Qatar until very recently. Everyone knew about Saudi Arabia and everyone had sort of seen the rise of Dubai as a sort of city-state. Um, and these these were countries, um, Dubai's part of the United Arab Emirates, but um, that had, you know, had established themselves on the map and were big international players. And Qatar wanted a bit of that action. You know, they had rulers who who wanted wanted to be on the map, and wanted to be um, wanted to be known, and wanted to be visible, um, and to establish a certain reputation for themselves on the world stage. Um, and and they did that um, with football. They did it through other ways, which which we probably don't want to get into um, in relation to you know the Arab Spring and the types of actors that they funded throughout the region. Um, but but football was it was definitely a big public relations, you know, a dimension of their public relations and their soft power policy, and it's been really mm. successful for them. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of blowback. There is a ton of you know this stuff is in the news right now, and it's getting a lot of criticism right now. But it you know there are a lot of times when when the criticism is only positive when they're able to, you know, present themselves as this fairly progressive state that's open for business and glitzy and um, um, somewhere, you know, that, you know, Western businesses should should, should be comfortable. Um, so, yeah, the end game is, I think, visibility, power, money, um, all the usual things. I thought what was interesting, what you said earlier, is that there's actually rivalry developing with these Middle East groups in terms of how much visibility they get in Europe. Do you see that being a factor going forward as well? Yeah, it's been a huge factor up to now. I mean, the Emiratis, I mean, the, the, there was a huge Gulf crisis back in, uh, which kicked off, uh, i get my dates wrong, uh, 2017, um, which effectively led to the Gulf states cutting off, you know, Saudi, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates basically went up against Qatar. Um, there was talk of invasions um, and there was a really heavy, uh, and serious attempts to to undermine the Qataris and to um, to not exactly conquer and take over Qatar, but to reduce them and to reduce their visibility and to reduce their power. And there's a lot of talk and a lot of serious people who you'll talk to about this who will say that actually it was Qatar's World Cup bid that that was a catalyst for that. I, there was such jealousy in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh about this that they decided that the Qataris had to be taken down a peg or two. Um, so it's it's playing out, you know, it's it's playing out in European football already. You know, you saw the Newcastle takeover. Um, well, why didn't that go through? Because the Qataris objected to the fact that the Saudis were pirating their TV station um, and effectively stealing the Premier League's money. Um, so that that's an area where it's already played out, and I think it's been playing out in, in, in the Qatar World Cup issue for, for a very long time in, in ways that it's probably too that probably you know we don't want to get into today but it's it is a factor and I think it will be a factor going forward yeah and I see reports today that um, Formula One have been asked to hold an inquiry into um, alleged human rights abuses in Bahrain so another player in the in the sports washing game there yeah the Bahrainis probably 
were, were doing it before the term was invented. Um, I'm not sure they got into it in such a strategic manner as, as, as Abu Dhabi or Qatar. Um, I think perhaps they just they really liked Formula One racing. But but uh, but since uh, since they've taken that on, yeah, it's been it's been central to their attempts to to deflect attention from what's been going on there, which is pretty horrendous since 2012 and before that actually. Um, so yeah, the Gulf states are, you know, they're, they invest heavily in, in, in sport because um, they know it's a really way, good way to reach audiences that they want to reach and to normalise their yeah. reputation and to present themselves as something uh, they are not. Sports washing is a funny term, you know, everyone thinks it's about, oh, you know, completely, um, y- you know, removing any attention whatsoever from the bad stuff. It's not that. It's about, it's about, they understand that they're putting themselves in the spotlight. Um, and they understand that that comes with um, with certain disadvantages, you know. But it's the it's the advantages that, that come with putting yourself in the spotlight, the ability to present yourselves as liberal and tolerant, progressive. Mm. Um, and 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 that news, if you fund it well enough, um, can reach far more uh, people, bigger audiences uh, than the smaller audiences who are concerned about about the nasty stuff. So it's a cost benefit mm. thing for them. Something to be mindful, I suppose, when um, for ourselves when Ireland line out against Qatar next week, yeah. um, and something I'm sure we haven't heard the last of. Um, we're just over a year to go before the the World Cup. Nick, thanks very much for coming on this evening. No worries, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, good to be on.